0: This is G and E the podcast, Golf and Entrepreneurship with golf course architect Riley Johns.
1: And I think the combination of them was I would say that would have been a breakout year just for, you know, coming from a small town and the Canadian Rockies to keeping my head in the dirt and that just kind of building golf and having a good time to people contacting you and all of a sudden you're getting associated with what is now Canada's number one golf course. And so, yeah, I mean, it would be hard to say anything other than
0: than that, really. Welcome back to G&E, the podcast. We are a weekly show dedicated to the entrepreneurial world of golf, where we talk with individuals who are creating remarkable careers and lives around this great game. And this week we have a very special guest on the show. Golf course architect Riley Johns has joined us for a two-part interview with part two dropping next week. And if you are really into golf, like a lot of us, you have probably heard of Riley as he is one of the guys, along with Keith Reb, behind the highly praised renovation of Winter Park. And Riley has worked in the industry for a long time with the likes of Corin Crenshaw and Tom Doak, and he's just had a fascinating career in life, which eventually led to him starting Integrative Golf Design, which I'll let him tell you all about in a second. But before we get into our interview with Riley, I just have a quick note from one of our sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by John Ashworth and his team over at LinkSoul. And at g and we obviously love entrepreneurial stories, and there are few that are as iconic than that of John's. After revolutionizing the golf apparel industry with his original clothing brand, Ashworth, that he started in a studio in L.A. and grew to a multi-million dollar company, John decided to start another apparel brand, LinkSoul, in 2009 with his co-founder, Jeff Cunningham, with the goal of reconnecting people to the soul of the game by making Link's soul more of a philosophy than a brand. And the name really says it all. The definition of Lynx is the sandy dunes that connects the land to the sea. And John spent a lot of time in Scotland, the home of golf, playing Lynx style courses and saw the tremendous soul that the game of golf had there. It was a lifestyle. The course was part of the community. And it represented everything that is great about the game of golf, which is spending time with family and friends around a physical activity that is shaped through some of the most beautiful landscapes nature has to offer. And with LinkSoul, John and Jeff have brought this soul of the game to life with their brand. Their apparel isn't just made for the course, but more so for the lifestyle golfer, And that you can wear it to work, you can wear it to golf, or you can wear it for a night out with friends. It's stylish and just looks great in every scenario. And so if this brand philosophy connects with you, then head on over to LinkSoul.com to learn more about all the awesome things they are doing, and our listeners get 20% off at purchase with the code GE20. And so head on over to linksoul.com to check all that out and remember to use the code GE20 for 20% off. And without further ado, let's get into part 1 of our two-part interview with golf course architect Riley Johns. Welcome to the show, Riley. What's going on, man?
1: Not much, Ryan. Thanks for thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure. I am incredibly excited for this as one of our contributors, Jay Revel, wrote an article titled A Fine Time for Nine about Winter Park and I'm sure a lot of our listeners saw that piece as well. And Riley is the architect behind it with his friend, Keith Rev. And we're going to get all into that project in a bit, but before we do, I'm excited to dive into your career and how you got into the industry in the first place. And so Riley, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and how you got into golf?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. So, um, I'm from Canada. I'm from a small town called Canmore It's in Alberta. It's about 20 minutes from, uh, from Bounce And, um, yeah, I, I grew up playing golf. I was never too serious about it. I was, you know, I played on the high school golf team, but I wasn't, I wasn't ever the kid that was uh, reading golf course architecture books or, you know, you know, or drawing golf holes on placemats at restaurants and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was for me more of a, just a great way to go outdoors and, and hang out with friends and, and play around and, and, and just, uh, just the gamemanship of it is what kind of attracted me to this game. So, you know, that's where I first got my taste, uh, in the, uh, in the, golf world. Um, you know, I was, I was more of, I was more into things like mountain biking and snowboarding. I competed snowboarding for a few years. I played hockey quite a bit until, um, until I realized I wasn't going to make the NHL and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, you kind of get to that point. I think. Uh, I think everyone that uh, plays hockey in Canada, which is about 99.5 percent of the population. <laughs> You kind of get to a point in your in your early career where you need to decide whether you're going to go forward with it and really put in the time and effort. I guess I guess you could say that about golf too, about anything really in life. Yeah, of course. And I knew I didn't have it. I just I just uh, decided that um, you know all this travel. You know, I was in high school. They wanted you to travel to two hours to practice, right? Because when you're in a small town, you don't have the population base to support a hockey team. So you you have to go to these, these larger centers where they cool, you know, a bunch of the, bunch of the younger people from, say, you know, these smaller farm uh, communities or small town mountain communities like where I live. And so I knew that wasn't going to be uh, my route. And um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, I played all kinds of sports. I was never just uh, solely into golf. And, and then as far as getting into the industry, I, I kind of just fell into it uh, by accident. It wasn't ever a, plan thing to be honest I uh, it was more of a, uh, a way to um, a means to support my travel and surfing habits as <laughs> okay, the best way okay. to put it and, and so yeah <laughs> I just so I, 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 you know, I worked at maintenance. I worked maintenance on a golf course. I worked, uh, I worked in a golf course kitchen, um, and then I ended up falling into uh, working for a golf course contractor, and which was like the most ideal job for me because I could work in the summers and then I could take the winters off, because obviously there's no golf construction work going on in the winters up here. And I could take the winters off and, and go traveling and uh, and go go hang up a hammock on a on a beach somewhere and just surf and that was kind of my uh my only goal in life at that point and uh but you know that as sounds amazing as those, yeah it was it was it was pretty good but I mean you get to a point where you start to realize you need to make some moves in in life and, and figure out what it is you do want to do and so um so you know a lot of people in in the golf world that I was working with, I, you know, I got to work with a lot of seasoned veterans in the industry, different architects. We traveled around quite a bit, you know, building golf courses, and and they, you know, I kept being told that I had a talent for it and I should pursue it, and and they explained, you know, some of the ways that you could pursue it, and um, and I figured, you know what, I enjoy this work. It's I really I don't mind putting in long days and and the outdoors you know dirt dirt in your fingernails you know building amazing kind of basically sculptures on 150 acres of land and i just enjoyed the people that i worked with and and the challenges that that building all presented and so i knew that if yeah if you don't mind going to work and if you don't if it's not something that you you wake up in the morning and yeah you know you're kind of going man I, i can't wait to get a different job and i think that perhaps is a is a is a is a a calling, and and I just kind of went with it, right? And um, and then that's when I started actually getting serious, and that's when I started picking up books and started reading about about golf course architecture, and and um, and then yeah, once I dove headfirst into the into the rabbit hole, as 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 you and many of your listeners probably know, it's a it's a fascinating topic, and um, I haven't looked back since. That
0: is so cool. You were just living the dream, surfing, traveling the world, working at golf courses. So you were definitely around the industry. And you mentioned that you started to work for a golf course construction company. And so was that the first time you realized you want to be an architect? I guess, I guess I'm wondering, was there ever a moment where you had this kind of craving to become a golf course architect? And if so, what the lineage of your career looked like from there?
1: you know, I never craved to really be a golf course architect. I, I, I knew I wasn't cut out to work in a, in an office. So, um, I knew that perhaps sitting at a draft, uh, a drafting table and, and drawing, um, probably I enjoyed that, especially in the colder months in the winters, but, uh, I really liked just being outdoors and, and, and building the golf, not, not necessarily, um, you know, the aspect of being a professional architect. It was, uh, the creation of golf in the field, you know, with the team of people that was building it, uh, the collaboration, you know, it's, it's a really weird industry or it's a really weird art form, I guess is the way to put it is, you know, how often would you get a group of artists together to paint a canvas painting, yeah. right? <laughs> and that's what golf, that's what golf is. It's, it's you got like several people working on the same art piece, um, at the same time, and it's uh it was fun. It was it was a it was a, a very unique experience. And every golf project that we would go build or work on had its own unique situations and constraints and problems that we'd have to solve and and uh, working through it. And then and then the satisfaction of of seeing the final product when it's all said and done, and then even playing it. Right, that's the other kind of cool part about golf is it's not just art that you look at right on the wall. It's like you actually experience it and enjoy it. So, so there's a lot of different layers to it that I, that I enjoyed. So becoming the architect was, you know, never even part of my, my plan. I, whatever kind of got me into the, into the field to, uh, you know, sculpt, sculpt dirt was really my, my primary kind of goal. And, And golf course architecture was kind of another level of understanding that I wanted to um, to get as far as my, from my own personal uh, understanding of the craft and the art form, and uh, to learn more about the history, learn a bit more about design, um, and that's kind of why I pursued the architecture route as well. And it, it was just kind of a, a means of bringing everything full circle uh, in the craft and just trying to grow, just trying to grow and get better at it. Basically, was the, the main the main goal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like to me that you just really enjoyed the art of it and being outdoors and you weren't necessarily an architect in the beginning, but it definitely became a goal once you got into the industry more. And the thing is, though, there are only so many golf courses being built every year and it's a very competitive industry to get into. And so for you getting to the stage your career is at today, how did you get that momentum going? Did you have some mentors along the way? Was there a breakthrough project? How did that all go?
1: it's a combination of all of them. A yeah, uh, <laughs> little luck. You, know, you, work, you just, you know, a lot of luck, <laughs> a lot of luck. It's, uh, but I mean, it's a lot of hard work too. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, a work ethic is so oh, key. Yeah. I mean, you talk to any, you talk to any of these guys that have, that have, uh, gotten to where they are and, and they didn't do it by, uh, by fluke. They they put in the hours. Right. So, you know, I've always had a, a strong work ethic, work ethic, which is, which is help. But I mean, um, you know the mentors for sure, and everyone along the way uh, has been so supportive. And uh, you know, I've had a lot of uh, amazing uh, opportunities. I've been so privileged to work with some some incredible people in the industry. And I, I know the media likes to to kind of focus on the big dogs like like Tom Doak and Bill Coor and Rod Whitman. But there's been a lot of other people, um, you know, that don't have the name uh popularity that they do guys like uh, don Placic, who works with renaissance golf you know when i was working in their office you know learning learning from him everything from graphic communication to you know how to how to run an office setting to um you know just dealing with clients on the phone you know it was was an amazing experience and uh, don Placic was a huge you know huge influence and then like Um, Dave Axlin, who works, who's worked with Coon Crenshaw from day one, worked with Bill Coor longer than, than they, than they're, you know, than, than Crenshaw. So, I mean, a lot of these guys have been in the industry for a long time and, and I've been very, very fortunate to, uh, not only uh, work with them, but also learn from them. And they've been an amazing uh, influence on me on helping me grow, um, in this craft and I'll be forever, uh, forever grateful to those, to those individuals.
0: Absolutely. And no one does it by themselves, no matter what they say. And like you were saying, any unique endeavor, it requires such an amazing work ethic to get through. And a lot of people can see things as an overnight success, but they don't see the 10, 15 years in the dirt working your way up. And you know, now you have some phenomenal courses and projects under your belt. But I'm kind of curious, was there any specific one along the way that was really a breakthrough moment that put your name out there?
1: Oh, definitely. That that would have been Cabot Cliffs, without a doubt. Yeah, no, it was, and and it was, you know, Corin Cranshaw's first Canadian project, so the the media was already already circling on that one, and uh, you know there was, you know, the, the, the property was just spectacular, so the the expectations were 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 huge, and you know it was kind of it was a weird it was a weird time because for me as well that was kind of when I I was always against social media. I was always, I never was on it. I was never had a Facebook account. I mean, I had a flip phone <laughs> until I was, until I was like 20, you know, I, well, I, I just was, I was kind of against it cause I was seeing what it was doing to my yeah. friends and doing to people. They were, just, they were just, they just seemed, um, not very focused on the, on the moment at hand, you know, they were just very, uh, distracted and, um, and I also didn't understand social media It was brand new back then, right that was kind yeah. of when it was people were learning what it was all about this this is before um uh, you know it became what it is now and so um so for me for me i, I I will also, during that project was the same year that I went on social media okay. and it wasn't out of, you know, I didn't know the value of it. I just knew that I, should, you know, I started my company, um, you know, integrative golf design and I needed to secure things like my internet domain rights. Uh, and, and so everything from a website domain to, um, my Twitter handle to Facebook to, uh, Instagram to whatever. I just knew that I needed to lock those in because who knows, someone might get them one day, and then I'd have to pay ten times to, to, to the dollar they spent on it. So, so that was so that was my main reason for for jumping on it. And um, and then at the, and then so so that happened at the same time as Cabot Cliffs. And then also in that same that same year or, or around that same time, I had won the Lidl Prize, the Alison McKenzie Lidl Prize. And so it it was kinda like a perfect storm in, in my personal life or in my career life for those kind of things to all come come to uh come together in one year. And I think the combination of them was I would say that would have been a breakout year just Absolutely. for you know, coming from a small town in the Canadian Rockies to keeping my head in the dirt and just kind of building golf and having a good time to people contacting you and all of a sudden you're getting associated with you know, what is now Canada's number one golf course. And so, yeah, I mean, it would be hard to say anything other than, other than that really.
0: Yeah, that really is a perfect storm and definitely a smart move by you getting all those accounts set up and seeing what social media could potentially do for your business back then. And this is actually a perfect spot for a quick break in the episode as when we get back, we can talk all about how that breakout year helped your career. But before we get to that, I just have a quick note from one of our sponsors. This week's episode is also brought to you by Encore Golf, an international golf ball company based in Buffalo, New York, that is disrupting the $1.5 billion market. Encore started when co-founders Brett and Steve first heard about the idea of a hollow metal core ball that would ideally perform with the accuracy similar to a bullet. They decided to take the idea to market, eventually becoming their first innovation, the caliber, whose metal core technology changed the USGA's rules for the second time in 100 years. And the result is, is a golf ball that delivers high-handicapped players the maximum accuracy they deserve. But more importantly, the Caliber cemented the team as innovators in a golf space that had very little of it over the past few decades. Their next goal was to introduce an entire suite of golf balls for players of all skill levels. With their own in-house research and development team, they followed up the Caliber with the Avant, a low-compression ball which gives players of all skill levels a high-end, affordable option. And the Avant was a huge success. It was selling out consistently, and it was time for their biggest innovation to date, the introduction of their tour ball, the Elixir, which is really the culmination of all the technology they have developed after being in the industry for over eight years. And the Elixir has been getting rave reviews. It's been testing off the charts. The high perimeter weighting has proven it to be the most accurate ball in the market, and it is so hot off the face that the governing bodies of golf sent them a warning letter that it was less than 0.2% away, from being over the USJ limit on initial velocity, but it conforms and is phenomenal. I recently switched the Elixir and absolutely love it. And if you want to try it yourself, head on over to EncoreGolf.com and visit their ball fitting page where you will be fit to the proper option for your game. And all you have to do is pay shipping for a free trial sleeve. And so head on over to EncoreGolf.com and check all that out. And for the second part of this episode we are going to talk about Riley's career from Cabot Cliffs onward. And so Riley, you had this year that everyone in the industry dreams of, but I'm kind of curious. And I think this question could be valuable on how to put yourself in these types of situations, but how did you get yourself into the right place to get this job at Cabot Cliffs?
1: So, um, the year before, the year before as actually through Dave Axeland. um, he had, uh, contacted me and, um, I was, he contacted me before any uh, before they broke ground. Uh, it was it was very early on in the process, and they were just in uh, they were just forming a team, and um, it was very difficult for Americans to come work in Canada and, unless they had the right qualifications uh for a visa which which is it's a bit of a punch list and it's the same you know back going for me to go work in the states i you know you need a you need a degree in an after approved profession blah 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 and a lot of the guys with the current crenshaw group didn't have that and so they're having trouble getting getting them up to canada to work uh legally and so basically they were forced to uh start uh, looking domestically for, for guys. And there's, there's not a whole lot of, um, <laughs> of guys in Canada really. And so, um, I uh, got the call from Dave, uh, axland and, uh, he asked if I would be interested in, in coming and helping them out and i was like, yeah, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, the funny thing was I was actually working with uh I was I was um with Tom Doak and the Renaissance guys at that time and uh wow. I was actually just in the process of flying out to uh China to go help on that project out there and uh and so I'd already committed to uh to tom and and I had to turn it down and um wow. and I said dave you know i this, this is a this is a situation I don't wish upon anyone <laughs> to have to choose between these two things, but I said i've already committed to to the renaissance and and know you know i I really need to um follow through on that and um it was something that I'd been trying to um get with tom for for four years prior to that. So, I mean, to just, uh, to, 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 you know, jump ship at that moment would probably have not, uh, been, not a good look. been good for, for, not a good look, yet. And, yeah. And and so, yeah, so I, so I had to turn it down, and um, and I wouldn't worked for Tom for, for that year. But I said to Dave, I said, look, um, I know you guys are going to be working on this for at least two years. If the opportunity still is there for the following year, um, I would love to come and help you guys out, And as it turned out. Um, they did have uh room for for where they did still need a guy and um it was actually Keith red that then called me and and he said that uh him and Dave were spoke speaking and they were wondering if if the following year they if I could come out and um and I said absolutely and so that was kind of how how that all came together
0: That's so cool it's uh it must have been an amazing experience in China and then the followed up with that and you mentioned a little bit back the uh, the Lido Design Prize, and you know, for our listeners who aren't familiar with what that is, can you tell us uh, a little bit about you know how you won it, and then what that experience was like?
1: So, the Lido Prize is an annual competition put on by Golf Digest and the Alistair McKenzie Society, and it's origi- It was originally a competition that was uh, that was held back in 1914. And, um, the, the first person to have won it, uh, it was, and it was, a, it was a magazine competition. It always, it always has been, and it was kind of an armchair architecture way. It's a way of kind of getting, uh, the public engaged in golf design and, uh, just a fun, it's a fun little competition. And Alistair McKenzie won it back in 1914, uh, with his famous Lido, uh, hole design. Um, and, uh, and, um, so that was kind of neat to win it a uh, hundred years after after he'd won it, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's a pretty neat competition, and if anyone's genuinely interested in golf course architecture and and wants to have a have a go at uh, designing a golf hole, it, it's it's ton of fun. It happens every year in the in the spring, and um, and uh, it's basically you got to design a golf hole, and then now it's morphed into something a little different, and it's basically uh, you got to design a golf hole uh with the ph- uh, philosophies and the and the kind of the uh style and um you know of alistair mckenzie so how would alistair mckenzie design a par four or par three or par five so using his yes he his principles and his design philosophies to create your own golf hole and then you gotta ha- you know try your hand at communicating that graphically right and you have to do it in, in his style of drawing too and and um, there's no names on the uh, on the uh, design on the um, entry form, so it's a blind competition, and it's and it's and it's um it's judged on the criteria of Alistair McKenzie. So uh, that's kind of the rundown of, of the Lidl Prize, and it's uh, every year they they host it, and and if you do win it, they uh, you win you win some cash, and they fly you out to wherever they're. Alice McKenzie Society gathering is, and it's usually at one of their courses around the world. It could be Royal Melbourne, it could be the Jockey Club in Argentina, and it could be at uh, Cypress Point. You just never know. They kind of move it around every year, and I was lucky to uh, go over to La Hinch and um, and hang out with them there for for a week. And I played La Hinch uh, at least six times while I was there, and uh, that was a that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me uh, as far as um, golf course architecture and, and kind of thinking about it in a little bit different in a different light. And so I'll be, I'll be forever grateful to those guys too, for, for having such a good time. They're so generous and um, such a blast. And um, you know, they they're one they're, they're the type of people in, that, that really enjoy golf and golf course architecture. And they're the type of people that, you know, one day I would love to fill the golf course or design a golf course for. So it was a blast.
0: That's really cool. I had the amazing opportunity. The only time I've been abroad is to Ireland. And I had the chance to spend a couple of days in Lahinch. and And uh, you, you mentioned you surfed. It was actually my first time surfing. And it was the coolest experience. You can wake up in the morning, go out on the beach, surf. Um, and then the golf course is just right there. And you can go play. And it's the most just amazing place Um I've been to just being a golf fanatic. I, it's just unbelievable. Is, is Ireland one of your favorite spots? I mean, obviously, but like, you know, regarding influence with design and, and things like that.
1: You know, it is. And, and, and I would, I would even, uh, you know, I got to play some amazing courses like Valley Bunyan and Royal County down and, and, and what have you. But Lahinch Hinch is just a different, it's a different beast on all on its own. it's just, it breaks every rule in golf course architecture and it does it just so beautifully. And, I think, I think a lot of people could learn a lot about golf course architecture by going there and not playing it once, not playing it twice, but playing it like three or four times and on different conditions and different times of the day. And, and just learning what that place is all about. I'm super excited to see the Irish open there uh, next year. I think that's going to be just the most fascinating thing to watch how, how some, some of these better players negotiate some of the questions that that course brings to them. But um yeah, I mean Ireland is, uh, has had a huge influence on on and Scotland for that for that matter on on what you know how I see golf and um, and it's it's been the biggest influence on every golf course architect <laughs> up to date, right? So I mean there's no there's no surprise there, but uh, you know there, it is for a reason and it's it's that those places just. Uh, embody the soul of what golf is right and it's a different um you know a lot of golf courses that you play in north america feel hollow and almost soulless or almost i don't know i don't know what the right word would be but there's there's something missing right and then you go over there and you play these courses and it's just got this whole spiritual kind of light to it right and it's you can't stop smiling skyline. when you're playing yeah.
0: it's it's, oh, it's
1: you really can, you can't right no. and and i don't know how to articulate what that is but i mean it's, it's different and um and I'm, I'm definitely interested in learning a lot uh, more on on why it's different and, and and things that i can take from there and, and help uh, uh myself grow as an architect and hopefully put that into my designs and
0: Oh yeah and it's just I couldn't agree more and you know we went from playing old head in 40 mile per hour winds and pouring rain to Lahinch in 75 sunny no wind and just uh you know the whole experience is amazing and if you've never done it you have to do it but this is a rabbit hole we could really go down for a long time so we'll have to maybe come back to this later but uh to continue on the lineage
1: You know what's weird though you know what? No, it's weird about that. Why? Why is it when the weather is even the worse, it is the bigger your smile is?
0: <laughs> I know. You're walking down, 50 mile per hour winds. You hit the ball like 120 yards off the tee, and you you can't you can't be more pumped about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Wow. But,
0: it's amazing. And so, yeah, but we'll have, maybe that's another podcast we'll do. We'll just talk all about that. But um, to continue on the lineage of your career and all that, uh, you know, you had this amazing experience. You know, like you said, you started off just just in the trenches and you finally had some breakthrough projects. You know, you worked with Tom Doak and then this all culminates in you starting your own design firm. And so can we talk a little bit about that decision and uh, you know, kind of why you decided to venture out on your own?
1: Yeah, so it was. Uh, I mean, it wasn't necessarily a decision that I, I thought about much. Uh, it was just out of necessity, really. It was. It was in twenty thirteen, and uh, Mister Dope needed me to um, be incorporated, be, be a company, uh, so that it was. Each, so I could a apply for a Chinese visa, work visa. But also for ease of payment from from his perspective, and also for insurance and tax reasons, and and so <laughs> that's why that's why I started my company was uh, it was just so I could do business, <laughs> and um, it was never really intended to hang my shingle out and be like, okay, I'm open for business, because obviously I was not ready for that yet, not even close um and and like i said earlier that's also why I, I locked in that's so once i incorporated and i actually had a you know registered company name that's when i decided that wow well, i should probably get my domain i should probably get the twitter handle and the facebook and just kind of lock all that stuff in so that um set up for the future if i do want to use those things and so so that's how i started the company it wasn't um it wasn't, uh, anything more than that. And, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was just so I could, it was just, it's just a, a lot easier to to conduct business and uh, to be hired, uh, a lot more versatility in, in today's world. You know, it, it feels to me, and I don't know if it's just the golf world or, or, or other businesses are coming this way, but it feels to me like it's becoming a, uh, a sub subcontractor, a freelance kind of world, freelance right? Where everyone's economy, their yeah. own yeah, freelance economy, yeah. Where everyone's becoming their own, you know, kind of bubble and whatever they you know, whatever wherever wherever they want to pivot in that market they're able to and they're not pigeonholing themselves into any sort of uh you know, structured company uh, uh kind of dynamics and and so I always kind of believe that, and I uh, talked to some people, and, and they recommended that that's probably the way things are going to. Uh, a lot of companies are just kind of, um, you know, hiring out, and as long as you kind of got your bookkeeping and your insurance and all your, you know, taxes and all that stuff in good standing, you're you're just a lot more versatile in being hired. So, so that was kind of the direction that that I went, and that was really the uh, catalyst for starting for starting integrative golf design.
0: That about wraps up part 1 of our two-part interview with Riley Johns and when we come back next week we are going to talk all about his career from this point forward which will be a big discussion around his highly praised Winter Park 9 and his thoughts on this model for courses in urban areas to grow the game and we will also dive into his upcoming project Rolling Green which for me growing up in the Philadelphia area was one of my favorite courses but until then to all our listeners thank you everyone for checking out this week's episode if you're enjoying the show and our incredible guests like Riley, please subscribe and take 30 seconds to leave us a review. It helps a lot with getting these stories out to the world. And so hit that subscribe button on your podcast app and make sure to come back next week for part two with Riley Johns. And until then, my name is Ryan Walker, and I thank you for listening today.